This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. You might be surprised to find out just how much we don't know about many of the common drugs we're taking. Half of all clinical trials are never published. We also know that trials with positive results are about twice as likely to get published. That's Dr. Ben Goldacre, author of Bad Pharma. He'll tell us how and why so much data from drug trials go missing and what it means for our health. Plus, when do you plan on retiring? If you're like most Canadians, chances are your plans have changed a lot in the last few years. Sun Life Canada President Kevin Doherty will be here with the shocking results of the company's 2013 Canadian Unretirement Index. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Were you conscientious about getting your flu shot this season? It may have been a wasted effort. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control has issued a report showing this year's vaccine is only 9% effective for those 65 and older. That compares to a moderate 56% effectiveness for all age groups. The flu vaccine tends to protect younger people better than the elderly and is never 100% effective. Here's something to consider if you're having a hip replacement. California researchers have found that hip replacements are more likely to fail in women. The researchers found the number of implants that fail is small overall, but women are nearly 30% more likely than men to need repeat surgery within the first three years. Nearly 60,000 Canadians have hip and knee replacements every year. Jerry McCaughey, the CEO of CIBC, has his own solution for getting Canadians on the right track to retirement. He says RRSPs and other retirement vehicles aren't offering a high enough return, and there's no guarantee of how much money investors will have to live on when they retire. So he's recommending that the government allow Canadians to make voluntary contributions to the Canada Pension Plan over and above the automatic deductions from paychecks. The idea is to give people certainty and lock in funds so they cannot be withdrawn until retirement. And finally, actress Emmanuel Riva is celebrating her 86th birthday at Hollywood's biggest party, the Academy Awards. She's nominated as Best Actress for her role in the French film Amour. In it, she portrays a retired music teacher who suffers a stroke that ultimately leaves her helpless and in the care of her longtime husband. If she takes home a golden statue tonight, she'll be the oldest Oscar winner ever, a title currently held by Canada's own Christopher Plummer. He was 82 when he won Best Supporting Actor for his role in 2010's Beginners. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It wasn't very long ago that almost all of us expected to retire around the age of 65. But very few of us still do. 
That change is taking place with stunning speed as more Zoomers approach and reach that age, realizing they just don't have enough money to last 20 or 30 years. A piece of research that encapsulates this new reality is Sun Life Financial's annual Unretirement Index. Sun Life Canada President Kevin Doherty came by to unpack the results of this year's survey. We were really surprised with this year's results, particularly when you contrast them with the results from the first survey, which we ran five years ago. So now only about a quarter of Canadians expect to be fully retired by the age of 66. That's one of the key findings. And if you went back to 2009, you know, it was more like 50% expected to be retired by age 66. So, so this is half of those levels in only five years. So in this survey, it looked like 25% of people would be still be working full-time, 26%, another 30% working part-time. So, you, you know, you get close to 60% of people, another 15% who weren't quite sure, which suggests, uh, you know, they may well be working at that point as well. Now, what percentage of those people expect to be working because they have to and not because they want to? So, so this was another really interesting finding because when we first started, Two-thirds of the people who said they were going to be working past age 65 said they were going to be working because they wanted to. In this year's findings, two-thirds of the people that expect to be working is because they feel they need to. The good news that's inside the survey as well is that you know people are living a long time, and they're needing to plan for longer and longer retirement years. The average person age 65 can expect to live to age 85. Half the people, again, will be living past age 85. And for a couple, you know, good chance that one of them will live well into their 90s. Uh, Cheer up, folks. That's good (laughs) news. That's what I say. Well, absolutely. And if you went back to someone who's age 65 today, when they were 25, a life expectancy was about 10 years shorter. So over the last 40 years, life expectancy has gone up for them by 10 years. So when you started saving at age 25, it was maybe for a shorter retirement. Um, there are ways to, to get ahead of this. Obviously, you know, saving is very important. Having a plan is probably the most important thing you can do. You know, if you have to fund, say, five or 10 more years than you were expecting to, that's a, a lot of extra money to put away. Absolutely need to think about how do you make your money literally last a lifetime? How do you protect your, your savings from, you know, big shocks like a big health event or like, you know, other economic events or, you know, taxation? These are all big things that one needs to protect themselves against. So, so tools like, like annuities, you know, are very, very powerful. Plans that, you know, look at both pre-tax and RSP savings, which are tax-protected, you know, in, uh, as they grow, and, and unregistered savings, how you put all these things together. It's, it's very important you look at all of these things and, and use all the tools at your disposal. All of this is happening in a very, very low interest rate environment where people used to be able to expect a healthy annual return on, on their nest egg, and now really you can't. I think that is one of the – if you go back to the survey and say, well, you know, why, why have their attitudes shifted so much in these last five years? I think, you know, between the economic crisis, the low interest rate environment, and, you know, expectations along, uh, around living a long time, these three things have, have come together. For sure, the interest rate environment is a big factor for people. Back to the survey, uh, what ramifications do you see in terms of the way people adjust 
their savings and their working life. In a lot of workplaces, there are savings programs that employers sponsor, so group RSPs at work or DC pension plans. It's surprising how many people don't take full advantage of those. And in many cases, employers actually match your contributions. And so an an easy thing to do is to participate in these programs at work. If you're working longer, should you be in a medium-term horizon longer than you would have? That's a good point. You know, I think, um, you know, you really need to get a fix on kind of the retirement date you're working towards, when you're going to start to draw down on those savings and work towards that. And But as you get closer and closer to that date, I think you're taking less and less risk. You know, one of the things you worry about is endpoint risk. You know, the day you retire, you don't want that to be the day that the market crashed, the, you know, a week before that, right? And so you need to think about endpoint risk uh, as you work towards retirement. For example, there's something called the milestone funds that say that you're planning to retire the year 2020. And uh, this is a fund that invests in bonds and equities, but you are guaranteed to have the highest month-end value when you retire if you hold it to retirement. There's the challenge of saving till the day you retire or the day you're going to draw down. And then, and then the next challenge is how do you make your money you know, last a lifetime? And hopefully it's a, it's a long lifetime. So, you know, you need to think about strategies that uh, more and more people are looking for guaranteed income strategies. You know, we're seeing more and more use of different kinds of annuities such that, you know, they pay you no matter how long you live. Uh, guaranteed income. You don't have to worry about markets. You don't have to worry about um, about interest rates. But they end when you die. Your spouse they, doesn't they, get it. They end when you die, although you can buy a joint life annuity so that it, it, it uh, ends when the last person passes away. Okay. Is there anything else that uh, we should keep in mind as we look at this new landscape? What we see in the survey is that people that have a plan feel a lot better about retirement than people that don't. If you can get a plan and you start working towards a plan, you're going to feel a lot better. Okay, Kevin Doherty, thanks so much. Okay, thanks very much, Libby. That was Kevin Doherty, president of Sun Life Financial Canada. If you need some financial advice, you can meet with one of Sun Life's experts and get a free one-year CARP membership and a subscription to Zoomer magazine. For more information, go to sunlife.ca slash CARP. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. How much do you know about the contents of your medicine cabinet? You might be surprised to find out that although there are extensive clinical trials for many common drugs, the results of many of these trials never see the light of day. Coming up, Dr. Ben Goldacre will tell us why this happens and why it's such a problem. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Are those pills you're taking really the best medicine? Does your doctor even know? Maybe not, says British physician, academic, and writer Dr. Ben Goldacre. His latest book, Bad Pharma, chronicles how and why the results of many drug trials go missing and what that means to your health. Goldacre made a name for himself writing the Bad Science column for The Guardian and a book by the same name that debunked everything from homeopathy to vaccine scares. He dropped by the studio when he was in town recently. 
It's certainly true that clinical trial results go missing in action. And this, I think, is the, the single biggest ethical and practical problem facing what we call evidence-based medicine today. Half of all clinical trials are never published. We also know that trials with positive results are about twice as likely to get published. So this means that overall what we see is not just an incomplete picture, but also an exaggerated picture of the benefits of treatments. How much of this poses a danger to patients? There are two very separate issues here, I think. The first is, are the drugs currently on the market actively harmful? Are they worse than useless? And as I say, I think that's quite unusual. I I think it's pretty rare that drugs come to market which do more harm than good. Mm -hmm. But I think what does happen much more commonly is that we're misled about the relative benefits of different treatments. So we don't know which treatment is the best. And that's a real problem because when patients are deprived of the best treatment by being given one that's second best, then they are exposed to avoidable risks. They're exposed to avoidable suffering and harm. For example, there are several very widely used drugs where we don't know which is best. And the extent of our ignorance would, I think, amaze people. For example, we know that statins are better than nothing. We know that statins are better than a dummy placebo sugar pill because all statins have been compared against a dummy placebo sugar pill and shown to reduce death. When it comes to comparing each individual statin against the other, we know that they're all equally good at lowering cholesterol. But still nobody has ever done a real-world study looking to see which statin is best at preventing heart attack and death. And why is that? Firstly, drug companies may not have a lot of interest in trying to find out whose statin is the best because they may know, or at least they may worry, that actually they're all equally good, in which case everybody would just use the cheapest. Often you see new drugs that are extremely expensive being touted when the old drug that's either coming off a patent or is just less expensive might be just as good. So again, this is a really interesting area. If there are two drugs which are equally effective, but one's very cheap and one's very expensive, obviously companies will be highly motivated to make the new expensive drug look as if it's better than the older, cheaper one. And I think patients... And certainly society is harmed when we spend too much money on drugs that are no better than than very cheap ones. And that is where you see a lot of the worst behaviour of biased dissemination, by which I mean really marketing, um, and also data being withheld. Now, I'm surprised that governments tolerate this because in most cases, in pretty much every developed country except the US, for the most part, it's governments that pay for, for medical treatments. When information is withheld, is that always at the discretion of the pharmaceutical company? Firstly, we have to be clear it's not just about drug companies hiding data. Independent academic studies are also commonly withheld, and that's a real problem. People have been routinely ignoring legislation that forces them to publish results, like the FDA Amendment Act, which requires that results are posted to a website called clinicaltrials.gov within one year. When the law was brought in five years ago, everybody said, oh, well, that's fine, everything's fixed. The problem of missing data has been resolved. But there was no routine public audit. And when a paper was finally published in the British Medical Journal just last year, it showed that 22% of the trials had complied with this law, but four out of five trials had not complied. They had ignored this law. And yet the FDA have never imposed any fine on any company or researcher for ignoring that law. So if that is the worst problem, rank the other problems in order (laughs) of severity. Um, 
We also need to make sure that we get results going back in time. So the FDA Amendment Act only gets you the results of new clinical trials finishing after 2008. Well, that's actually no good because we know that about 80-85% of the medicines that we prescribe came on the market more than 10 years ago. So what we need for clinical practice today are the results of clinical trials from 2005, 2002, 1998. All of that information still exists. It's in dry storage archives, in chalk hills and in dusky underground bunkers. And, and we need to have a program of going and getting that stuff and making it publicly available. But also, we could just ask for it. And the amazing thing is, in many cases, we haven't. I feel like I should make a full disclosure that this isn't a dramatic conspiracy theory book and it's not a self-help book. It's about the flaws and imperfections in the information architecture of evidence-based medicine. And I think the public could and are, could be interested in that stuff. And I think they are interested in that stuff, right? Okay, on that note, I think we'll wrap it up. Dr. Ben Goldacre, thanks so much. Hey, thank you. Bad Pharma, How Drug Companies Mislead Doctors and Harm Patients is published by McClellan and Stewart. Since it came out, a British parliamentary committee has launched an inquiry into the problem of missing trial data, and the pharmaceutical giant GlaxoSmithKline has pledged to share all the results of all the trials it has conducted. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Tonight is Oscar night, and we have a hometown hero to cheer for. Coming up, we'll tell you about Michael Dana and the soundtrack to The Life of Pi. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international arts date book tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, you may know her from her role as Evelyn on TV's Two and a Half Men. Holland Taylor wrote and stars in a one-woman play about former Texas Governor Ann Richards. The play called Ann is in previews at the Vivian Beaumont Theater on West 65th Street. To the Windy City, where the Art Institute of Chicago is celebrating a 100-year relationship with Picasso. It was the first museum in the U.S. to present the work of a young Spaniard who would become the preeminent artist of the 20th century. The current exhibition displays 250 of Picasso's finest works. We've all received invitations with a dress code such as black tie, but imagine clothing optional. That's what happened in Vienna for the opening of an exhibit called Nude Men from 1800 to Today. It continues at the Leopold Museum. And in Moscow, the Little Mermaid is a ballet in three acts at the Stanislavski Theater. I'm Jane Brown, and that's your International Arts Datebook. We're just a couple of hours away from another Oscar night, and Torontonians have a nominee to cheer for. Michael Dana composed the soundtrack to The Life of Pi, which has been nominated for Best Original Score. He's also earned a nomination for Best Original Song, with the standout hit, Pie's Lullaby. Now, Michael Dana might not be a household name, but he's played an important role in Canadian music for quite some time. He studied music composition at the University of Toronto, winning the Glenn Gould Composition Scholarship in 1985. 
He then went on to serve five years as composer-in-residence at the McLaughlin Planetarium in Toronto, and during that time he began composing film scores. He has since penned the music for movies such as Girl Interrupted, Capote, Deepa Mehta's Water, Adam McGoyan's The Sweet Hereafter, Adoration, Chloe, Moneyball, and most recently, The Life of Pi. We'll have our fingers crossed for him tonight, and his chances look good. He already took home the Golden Globe for Best Original Score, and right now we'll hear some of that award-winning music, Pi's Lullaby. to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Please come back next week and stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Bandrill. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.